0: It's hard to remember, but just a few short months ago, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler was distinctly unenthusiastic about the idea of impeaching President Trump, even after the damning evidence of obstruction of justice laid out in special counsel Robert Mueller's report. But then something changed. A young former New York State economic development official named Lindsey Boylan announced she was challenging Nadler in next year's Democratic primary accusing him of being far too tepid in going after the president. Suddenly, Nadler started sounding more aggressive in his comments about Trump, until he finally announced, just this month, a full-fledged impeachment inquiry by his committee. It's the latest example of that old adage, in the end, all politics is local, and it may have turned Boylan, a political unknown, into the most politically influential person in Washington you've never heard of. Now some are saying she could be the next Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We'll talk to Lindsay Boylan about her long-shot challenge to Nadler, and we'll interview Josh Campbell, a former FBI agent and special assistant to James Comey, about his new book, Crossfire Hurricane, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether
1: or not their president's are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else.
0: I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. So poor Jerry Nadler. He finally uh, convenes the first impe- impeachment hearing on the president and uh, has as his star witness Corey Lewandowski, who just makes a
1: mockery of the whole thing. Yeah, this was their first fact witness, right? This was the first opportunity to really cross-examine a witness and participant in um, any of these uh, allegations involving uh, Trump and Russia and obstruction. It did not go very well. No, he. he But the question is like, why? Nothing beyond,
0: you know, agreeing that what was in the Mueller report was correct, but he would not go beyond that one word. He kept citing the letter from the president's lawyers saying he can't talk about that. The Democrats grew frustrated and they were unable to advance the ball at all.
1: I mean, not only that, but all you need to know is that Corey Lewandowski. Wanted to be there. You know, there were two. Yeah. There were two chairs. He was flanked yeah. by two chairs on his left and right. Those were supposed to be the chairs where Rob Porter and uh, Rick Dearborn were going to be sitting. Yeah. Um, they were also subpoenaed, but they refused to. to uh, at the, from the orders of the White House, they refused to testify to protect executive privilege, right. White House confidentially, whatever. Lewandowski could have done the same thing, but he wanted to be there right. because he may be running for uh, Senate in New Hampshire. And he thought that this would be in his interest. It would be an opportunity to throw red meat out to the base. <laughs> and it tells you everything, which is right. that this is entirely, you know, a political circus from their perspective. And right. they can gain points from it. Right.
0: Now, the uh, expert cross-examination from the hired gun lawyer Barry Burke, was it, did establish one thing that uh, Corey Lewandowski Lies on national
1: television. Uh- <laughs> it was a Perry Mason moment, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, no, I thought I actually thought he landed. Yeah, he landed no, some he did. blows, he and did. he he got Corey Lewandowski to say, you know, yeah, I have no obligation to tell the truth to the media, right? Uh, well, I don't know. Is that what his mother taught him <laughs> when he was growing up? Yeah. Uh, you
0: know. Uh, it's a, we've got a far cry from George Washington and the cherry tree <laughs> to Corey Lewandowski. unless I'm under oath, I can <laughs> lie to you about anything. Yeah. I don't know how many people were shocked by it. But look, the bottom line is it did not uh, go all
1: that well for the House Democrats. But it raises larger questions right. about whether they can get traction at all when right. it comes to uh, right. impeachment. But and-
0: uh, I think we're going to shed some light on how we got to this point with our first guest, who may be uh, more responsible than anybody to uh, getting Nadler to move towards the process wait, wait, we're d- going through
1: now. Don't tell me it has something to do with politics. Mm, uh, well, you can
0: judge for yourself after <laughs> okay. you listen, to, too, after
1: we listen to our guest. We may be a little too cynical.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's get to it. We now have with us Lindsay Boylan, um, who is running for Congress in New York City um, as a Democrat against Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Lindsay, welcome to Skullduggery.
2: Thank you so much for having me. So
0: my premise, Lindsay, is that you have had... More influence on events going on in Washington right now, specifically the House Judiciary Committee impeachment inquiry into President Trump, than almost anybody, even though nobody knows who you are. Well, not nobody. Well, nobody (laughs) in Washington knows who you are. But do you think
2: I'm right? Yes, I do think you're right. I do think you're <laughs> Great. right.
0: Then we have been vindicating. questions. Yeah, I off? do. I, question.
2: I do think you're right, but it's not nearly enough because, as you know, I've called for impeachment, and that's what we need to do, and that's not where we are. Okay, so. but we, let's explain <laughs> this
1: because Nadler yeah. was basically following the uh, instructions, instructions of, of, of Speaker Pelosi. Of Speaker sure. Pelosi, and for many, many, many months has not said that he was in favor of impeachment. He was very careful about that. Right, and, and he then, was
0: making that very explicit. In fact, I think we have a clip of Nadler speaking right after the Mueller report we mm-hmm. want to play in which he's asked about impeachment.
1: I don't want to make it sound as if we're heading for impeachment. Yeah. Probably we're not.
0: Okay, that was May 15th. Now, Lindsay, when did you get into the race calling for the impeachment of president trump
2: well i on twitter i called for impeachment after michael cohen's second hearing so that was back in february but i entered the race in april so from the moment i was in the race i was for impeachment right if that answers your question and
0: at that point did nadler was he aware of your entering the race was he hearing
2: footsteps absolutely No, no absolutely i mean There was a New York Times article that floated my name. I think it was in late February as well. And I had people on his team. You know, I was aware that they were watching what I was doing and and all of that from that moment. But it certainly got more pronounced once once I announced and was out there. Right.
0: And you announced and then you report. That you had raised a quarter of a million dollars, which is a nice sum for sure. a primary opponent. Uh, sure. When
2: was that? That came out mid July. Mid July. Uh,
0: so it seems that Nadler became more and more receptive oh, yeah. to impeachment after. Your candidacy seemed more serious.
2: absolutely. There's no question. It's been credited in in several different publications, and he started responding through a spokesperson to articles that that I would be quoted in with respect to impeachment. Uh, and most recently, Daily Beast had an article where he actually said, this is, you know, this is just a tool for her to run on, in essence. So this has clearly piqued him. I wish it peaked him more, and I wish mm-hmm. it peaked him more earlier because we should be impeaching this well, president. Are
1: you, are you running on impeachment? How important I'm not, is that to your candidacy?
2: I'll say it differently. I'm not running on impeachment. What I would say is we can't accomplish very much in this country if we have a president that has lost the public's trust. And that's really what this is all about. We, How can we have an honest broker? How can we have an honest relationship with the White House, with the GOP? When we have someone who maligns the press, calls them the enemy of the people, who obstructs justice, continues to find ways to prevent the truth from coming out, it's all connected to me. And frankly, the fact that the Democratic leadership sort of folds behind gamemanship of what's going to happen with the presidential election rather than holding the president accountable is all part of the same problem for me. It's part of the reason why we haven't seen change in Washington. We haven't seen the necessary response to a changing economy, inequality, climate change. They're not separate in terms of issues. I think it's part of the sickness of Washington.
1: But the election is a little more than a year away. Impeachment still seems like a pretty high bar to to get over for, for Democrats Wouldn't it be better just to let this election play out and have Trump be removed from office by the American voter?
2: Right. Well I think he will be removed, you know, by the American voter. I don't have some sense that the Senate votes would change from what we imagine them to be and that the impeachment process would get through the Senate. But I believe at a core level that we need to hold this president accountable. I'm a mom of a five-year-old. If I treated disciplining her the same way Washington and Democrats, leadership Democrats, are thinking about this process with impeachment, that we only do it if we think we can, we can win, we only do it if we think you know that's the best outcome. That's just not a way to proceed. It's not ethical. It's not the right thing to do. And I certainly don't want to be on the record. You know, I wouldn't want to be in any of the shoes of the leadership, including Congressman Nadler, in not pushing for this. It's the right thing to do. And instead of of taking an action, um, the president is more and more emboldened to disrespect the law, disrespect, frankly, the American people. I mean, this is different than the things I just mentioned as an example, but call, telling for. Um, Congresswomen of color to go back where they came from, calling Jewish Americans disloyal if they vote for Democrats, having a closer relationship with Kim Jong-un than you have with some of your own electeds in your own country, all of these things sort of would be unfathomable in any other context. And I think we've made that easier. We've become immune to it because this president has become emboldened every day to do these kinds of things that in any other circumstance would be completely you know, we we keep saying if Obama had done, if Obama had done this, well he would never have done any of these things. All right, So
0: tell us a little bit about yourself. How you got into this race. What you did. What your um, sure. Qualifications to be a sure. Congress person are okay. oh, yeah.
2: sure. So I um, I started my career in New York in urban planning. I came to it uh, after graduating from college. I was really interested in post Hurricane Katrina, this concept of rebuilding a city equitably. Of course, we know that's not what's happened in New Orleans, but that's what I came to New York with. Jane Jacobs had just passed away, and I was really interested in how you make cities work. Started in that field, went on to manage Bryant Park and a couple of other public spaces in the city. I went to business school at Columbia part-time. It was just after the financial crisis, so you don't leave a good job. And then I went into municipal finance, so how you fund infrastructure investment. And then finally, I Work for the state, because I said, I know how to make cities work. I know how to fund the infrastructure for them. And now I want to go actually be in government. So ultimately, I worked for the state and the governor for four years, overseeing at the end as Deputy Secretary for Economic Development and Housing, all of the economic development, jobs, housing portfolio, and then also things like storm recovery and the state's relief work in Puerto Rico. And I've been a great sidekick to a bunch of powerful men my whole career. (laughs) And that has been a great learning experience. It's also partially fueled me as the mother of a daughter in a district that's entirely represented at every level of government by a man in a progressive heart of our country. To get into it, I saw these women across the country get out in the midterms. And they inspired me how much of an impact they could have simply by talking about their lived experience and the issues that matter to them. And to me, we've had, let's say, a decade or so talking about the renaissance of cities and local and state governments to really take over the role of the federal government. There's still a lot we can't do without the federal government, infrastructure investment, mm-hmm. um, fixing NYCHA, just to name a few things relevant to my di- – all these things. So, so
1: other than uh, Jerry Nadler's chromosomes uh,
2: – <laughs> Sure.
1: Why is he not providing, in what way is he not providing the kind sure. of leadership that you think is required, and, and why would you?
2: Sure. So in 30 years almost, he's passed three pieces of legislation. Two of those are ceremonial. One is naming a building after Ted Weiss, who passed away in office, an FBI building, to get that seat, which is how he came into that seat. And then the sub- sub- substantive bill is related to 9-11, which we can all get behind in terms of support for that. It's in our district. But meanwhile, over the course of these almost three decades, him being probably the least most productive member of Congress in terms of authoring his own legislation into law. He co-sponsors a ton, but so does everyone, right? Talk about really doing things, leading the drive. You know, New York has crumbled in a lot of ways. We have an infrastructure that's fraying. We need a new gateway tunnel, which he's talked a lot about but hasn't done anything about. NYCHA, which is public housing in New York, 90% of residents went without hot water or heat last winter. It's unfathomable. 20,000 kids are sleeping in shelters every night in the city of New York. We are ill-prepared for climate change in a district that has miles of coastline. For me, on a personal level, we are totally not confronting the mental health crisis I think we have both in the city and this country. Any number of issues, the innovation that I've seen is happening exclusively at the city and the state level. And gosh, wouldn't it be nice to have a Congress, member of Congress who took those on and partnered.
0: So, But he is of national interest right now because sure. he's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Sure. And I gather your critique is his stewardship of the committee has been tepid and not as right. aggressive as you think it should be. So spell out what you think Nadler has failed to do that he should have been doing from the get-go.
2: Well, before chairing of the judiciary, because that only happened this year, I think he's had a leadership position for a long time and a platform to get things done. I think he should have called for impeachment hearings. We should have had a vote on that some time ago. Instead, we have this consistent charade, even though I didn't see all of the Corey Lewandowski Mm -hmm. testimony. My understanding is that it's basically Excerpts from the Mueller report, which relate to Corey Lewandowski, which is basically another version of Bob Mueller coming in and reading the Mueller report, which is basically another version of the release of the Mueller report. What I see and the failure of leadership that I see is that Congressman Nadler is asking someone else to do his dirty work. No more information is coming forward. There's not an expectation of new information. He said it. You know, you, we've heard him say in numerous times, he's committed impeachable offenses. There's nothing new that we're we're looking for. It's all there. The 10 instances or so of obstruction of justice. We can go to the press. We can we can talk about all these ways that the president has lost the public's trust. But instead of going along with that, Congressman Nadler is listening to the Speaker of the House because he knows that's where his source of power comes from. That is not leadership for this district that overwhelmingly supports impeachment. That's not leadership in terms of making hard decisions. That's what we ask our leaders to do sometimes, most times in the difficult most times and that's what we need in this case. So I think he's absolutely fumbled on this. I think he's he's actually given credence through this muddled, elongated, prolonged process of nothingness to the idea that it's entirely politicized. And that is the worst and most dangerous thing he could do because it gives some people the impression that this is exclusively about politics when what it's about is The soul and the heart of this country, that we have a president who is using for personal gain, completely losing the public's trust, is damaging to the heart of our democracy. And we have a leader because he's trying to fend me off in part. (laughs) How is he trying to fend you off? I mean, he's trying to give this charade. You call something impeachment hearing. You call something impeachment inquiry. I think that's what the DOJ responded to on Friday. He said, Mm -hmm. you know, you've said different Mm -hmm. things and then you write the word impeachment and you think that's going to get you better access through the courts to the information you want. Mm -hmm. So that's a charade. Uh, You know, I've said it before. It feels like inception. It's a dream within a dream. It's like the impeachment within the impeachment within the, you know, when are we going to get to the real thing? And that's the most damaging piece. The One of the things that the president has been devastatingly effective with is painting the media as fake news. People start to think it. They start to hear it. And why would we give anything that gives the impression that we're that we are leading on impeachment for any other reason than it's the right thing to do and that we know it's the right thing to do? The way it looks now is is that we're back and forth. We don't know where we're going. We're waiting for something new to unfold, right. which inherently says that what we already know isn't so enough. So you were
0: saying quit the charade, just vote uh, out yeah. articles of impeachment That's right why I said when is the vote? The when
2: is the vote? I mean, months right. ago, but when is the vote? What
1: right. would be your your you know, top couple of articles of impeachment.
2: I mean, I, I I, I would just say we should go forward with impeachment.
0: Well, you want to say what it is you think he should be impeached for.
2: Loss, I mean, high crimes and misdemeanors. Loss of the well, public that's trust. that's the constitutional yes.
0: definition, but, you know, obstruction of justice. Emoluments, what... Obstruction, you know, I mean, all of, I don't of want it. Want to all of it. Obstruction you, of but, justice, yeah. emoluments
2: clause, um, all of it. The yeah. kitchen sink.
1: Yes, <laughs> yes. Let, let, let me ask you, so... Impeachment has come up this week in another context, yes. and that is Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The new York Times reporters come out with this book, which uh, they report a new alleged incident. There's some yeah. serious questions about the reporting. But by now, five or maybe it's six Democratic nominees um, sure. have come out in favor of impeaching Justice Kavanaugh. What's your view on that? Should he I be impeached?
2: I think we should, absolutely. Absolutely. I think he should be impeached and there should be an investigation as to why the FBI didn't follow up on these claims and why on the stand, when he was giving his testimony, he in essence lied about these interactions because he said they were absolutely untrue. And now we hear through very credible sources in DC, someone I understand is at least one person named is very credible. that he observed Max I think Max Steyer. Max, Max Steyer. Yeah. Although
0: uh, the woman who was the alleged victim has said she does not recall the incident right. which is um, significant in and of it itself but let me ask you is Natalie going to
2: debate you? Oh yeah. He is? Absolutely. Is that
0: are there plans for a debate?
2: I mean he will. <laughs> well, I think how, it's wh- only going to look bad, bad. confidence? You know if he doesn't it's going to look bad for him. You know, if he's unwilling... Have you
1: challenged him to a debate? Mm -hmm. Will you challenge him to a debate right now, right here on Skullduggery? Go right ahead.
2: I challenge the congressman, Congressman Naller, to a debate. I'm (laughs) expecting it. The district expecting it, they deserve a debate, and they'll have one. If it's me standing alone talking about the reasons (laughs) and why I should be representing this district, absolutely.
0: I mean, look, he's been a liberal stalwart since he got elected in, what, in 1992, I think it is. So he's been there quite a while. He's entrenched. Um, The district is amenable to him. I mean, Upper West Side, down through Greenwich Village. What makes you think you can knock him off?
2: You know, I spend every day in the community. I talk to people in the district. I door knock. And people are afraid about the future. People feel as though they haven't been heard. People feel as though their government could be doing a lot more than it is. When you listen to people in this district, you hear a lot of need. You hear a lot about housing. You hear a lot about climate change. You hear a lot about real challenges that families have. You hear about mental health, you hear about health care. And what you don't hear by and large is how Congressman Nadler has helped people in the district. So there is a real need, there's a real need to listen, there's a real need to serve, there's a real need to be of the district which is not something that I've observed or experienced having been someone who's worked in in government for the, you know, almost two decades I've been in New York. This is a district like much of the like the country. That needs someone who's going to lead. It's a district that is fast changing. You know, every it includes everything from Hudson Yards to Hell's Kitchen to to all of Wall Street, which has doubled in population since the early 2000s.
0: You have been compared to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, sure. another young woman who ran in a primary and successfully knocked off an entrenched incumbent. Joe Crowley, Um, do you see yourself as the
2: next AOC? I really admire what she's done. And one thing I always like to say is that I don't think she won because he failed. I think she won because she's quite impressive. She's um, compelling. She's authentic. And she's got a message that resonates with people's needs in the district I'm not trying to be anyone else. This experience is not an easy experience. <laughs> it is it is an uphill climb the whole way until the end when we win. If I was trying to shape myself off of someone else, I probably wouldn't succeed. And I always tell my daughter that she should just be herself, and that's you, what I'm trying to do.
1: Are you courting her endorsement?
2: I would I would be honored to have her endorsement. I'm not focused on it. Really, I think what all... She po- is
0: endorsing primary opponents to incumbent congressmen. I have congressmen. seen that.
2: And I would, I would welcome it. I would find it an honor. But I think the most important thing, which is what I started with, is making sure people in the community... Right. Um, are listened to and are advocated for. And that means I got to spend my time in the community. And that is the most important thing. I mean, all politics are local. That right. is the most important thing. Right. Although and then,
0: you did point out to me when we first spoke that you differed from AOC on the Amazon uh, Sure, deal yes, yeah. You, I, I,
2: wanted, I wanted 25,000 jobs paying $150,000 each average, I think. I wanted that diversification for the economy for New York City. You know, I would think what we learned mostly from the financial crisis, which I was a recent college grad in the middle of, is that we have to have a diverse economy. Our economy in New York is still very much dependent on the financial sector. We need to diversify in tech and the life sciences. And if you were in this space, like I had been in economic development, either at the city or the state level, we spent a good decade or so working on that. And this is not an endorsement of Amazon. It is an imperfect <laughs> company, but it is going to be the most, one of the most important companies for the next, I don't know, century. We'll see. I mean, I don't want to predict, but it's a very important company. I wanted good-paying jobs for New Yorkers, and the reason why they were attracted to New York was because of our skilled employee base, our diverse skilled employee base, and I thought that was a good fit.
1: So, Lindsay, I, I know you're mostly focused on your own campaign, but sure. we are now in the middle of – what I'm sure you think is the most consequential presidential election democratic primary race in uh, decades. Is there a candidate that you are supporting? Is there someone on the Democratic side who you would like to see succeed this president or the others? And who would that be?
2: Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I certainly have my thoughts. I'm very excited right now about Elizabeth Warren. I think Bernie. I'm excited to see what comes forth. I think of those two. Those are the most compelling right now for me.
0: Well, that would put you if you do succeed in the progressive side of the sure. uh, Democratic caucus, would you associate yourself Absolutely. with the
2: squad? Yeah. I, well, I mean, I what I would say is this. Uh-huh. I'm a progressive. Are you sure you want to go there? I know. I'm saying what I'm saying is district? I'm a pro- what I'm saying is I'm a progressive. I think For me, what being a progressive is about is dealing with inequality. You know, aside from climate change, that is the great challenge of our time. The fact that if you're in the bottom 20 percent, economically speaking, as a kid, you have a less than 10 percent chance of doing better than your parents. That finally, in this moment in time, 40 percent of women from the lowest economic background are living, living shorter lives than their own mothers. That's the central problem of our time. And what I see, quote unquote, progressives trying to do is deal with that. Uh that is, that is the issue of our time. So if you want to call me progressive, I'm excited about it. I'm not trying to be a part of any squad. I am not cool enough. I've already given up that fight. I'm really just trying to do the right thing for my community. And I think the less I try and um, pretend to be someone, the better.
0: Right. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. Just to recapitulate, Lindsay Boylan has challenged <laughs> Chairman Nadler to a debate on skullduggery. We will be following up with Nadler's staff to see if um, he's ready to take oh, we'll you be up doing on it. that. Yes, you <laughs> okay. can help me. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. We now have with us Josh Campbell, former FBI special agent, former special assistant to FBI director James Comey, and the author of the new book, Crossfire Hurricane, Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI. Josh, welcome to Skullduggery.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So a lot to cover in your book about you, because it was amazing to me. I mean, I've known you since you were in the um, public affairs office of the FBI. I did not realize after you graduated from there, you were in the middle of everything (laughs) at the FBI during the 2016 election from the uh, Hillary Clinton email investigation to Crossfire Hurricane, the investigation into Russian interference and ties to Donald Trump. Crossfire Hurricane, where'd the name come from?
3: So as has been reported, and I say that because obviously as a former, you know, FBI employee, there's a lot, even to this day, you can't talk about as it relates to to sensitive matters. But as has been reported, this, you know, came from the Rolling Stones song, Jumpin' Jack Flash, and inside the FBI in any investigation that uh, is high profile enough, they'll often have a code name associated with them. And that's for two purposes. First of all, for brevity, right? You can just quickly reference something. But also for operational security. So, you know, if you're passing someone in the hallway and they say, where are you going? You can say, I'm going to this crossfire hurricane meeting. Okay.
1: But, 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 but wait, hold on. Okay. Because anybody our age, yeah. Yeah. off my age, yeah. 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 knows, it need, doesn't need to be reported that, that crossfire hurricane comes from jumping jack flash. So the question is, how do they actually come up? With a code name like
3: that. So there are two two ways. Either the agent uh, or the group of agents that are opening investigation can come up with their own. The second option is there's this mythical computer database inside the FBI that will spit out a set of random names. Like an algorithm. It, an algorithm. But I say mythical because everybody has heard about it, but no one I know has ever used it, <laughs> to include myself. So every case that I have, I would come up with my own. So inside the FBI, that's you know someone very creative, um, you know, came up with <laughs> well, that hey, name. Well, here's to... the
0: thing, though. The reason I ask is because the code name for the Clinton email investigation midyear exam was about as boring right. as you could <laughs> imagine. Right. And Crossfire Hurricane is this cool code name. For the Trump I don't thing, know. so I why say, I think
1: a mid-year right. exam is kind of fitting for Hillary Clinton? <laughs>
3: oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, the first time I saw that yeah. mid-year exam, I just started on Comey's staff, and I thought that he was like being tested on something. I'm like, what is this on his schedule? is an exam like even the director? <laughs> right. And then I finally learned, like, oh, that's a Clinton case. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, one's boring, you know, a little boring. One is obviously a little more you yeah. know, interesting. But yet another example of how, despite the fact that politicians today try to blur these two investigations. They are very much different. Right.
0: So look, your book goes through a lot and has a lot of inside detail that I think readers will lap up. But your broader theme is hinted at in your um, subtitle about Trump's war on the FBI. When did it appear to you that the FBI was under attack from Donald Trump? And how was that processed by your fellow agents?
3: So the process started not just specifically pertaining to the FBI, but the larger intelligence community. Uh, You go back to after the president-elect and then, you know, President Donald Trump was sworn into office, he started signaling early on that he would go a place the president's past hadn't gone before as it related to the intelligence community. And you'll recall he actually blasted out this tweet. I remember, you know, inside the FBI, us reading that and you know, talking to other colleagues around the intelligence community, trying to figure out what it, in the world he was talking about when he said that he just learned that Obama had tapped his wire the wires at Trump Tower. Sick guy yes. is what the tweet yeah. said, and no one for the life of them could understand what he was talking about. In digging into that, it turned out that it was you know this kind of fringe media element that got picked up and repeated, and then back to him, and then he blasted out, which is kind of that pattern. But it was at that early stage where people you know started to take notes, like, well, this is interesting. It started as frustration any time that he would, you know, talk about law enforcement, you know, as it related to him, especially after the Russia investigation was publicly announced by former FBI Director James Comey, you really started seeing that ramp up of criticism uh, against the FBI. And the term witch hunt, for example, which now, you know, no telling how many times he's used that, uh, basically billing this group of public servants, investigators, as crooks, as criminals. Because if you think about what he's saying, yeah, it's kind of, you, you know, we think, oh, he's unconventional. But when he's saying that there's a witch hunt, that there are people out to get him, what he's essentially saying is these people have violated their oath to the Constitution, to the rule of law in order to go after him, which I don't think that, you know, we should lose sight of. But that continued to build. And then come, you know, Mueller comes on the scene after Comey's fired. And then the the campaign of attack is just, you know, fully underway. And it it continues to this day. It's here in September. Earlier this month, the president was saying that the FBI is disgraceful. It continues. So one thing I've wondered, I mean, Mike and
1: I have both covered the bureau for decades now. And I understand that, you know, it's sort of at the the leadership level and, and headquarters, that those kinds of words, that kind of rhetoric, those attacks from the president would be resented, by people in the bureau, but what about at the kind of brick agent level? Mm. Um, what's your sense of how Trump is viewed after all of this by rank and file agents across the country? You must have gone to lots of field offices with Comey when you were his special assistant.
3: No, absolutely, and I still keep in contact with you know FBI folks all over the country. You know, former colleagues, both as friends, I worked in the FBI for over a decade, but also you know in this reporting role as well. You know, covering this agency, and the theme that I that I see is these attacks aren't. Rendering them ineffective, you know, they're not going to allow that to, to really hurt them. But the way I, I describe it, and the way I write about it in the book, is if your listeners are not in government, say you're in any company, you know, any Fortune 500 company in the United States, and if the CEO came to work every single day blasting you as a crook and as a criminal, that would bother you. And that's essentially what has happened in the FBI. The Commander in Chief continually saying that these people that are in the executive branch uh, are crooks which obviously doesn't sit well, but more importantly, and I, and I write about, this is essentially the theme of the book, trying to sound the alarm for the American people, that the campaign of attack is not just political in nature, but it has real-world consequences because, and I, I talk just as one example, I spoke with an FBI agent who works counterintelligence cases after the, the so-called Spygate incident and where the president and Devin Nunes, you know, the then chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, were trying to figure out whether the FBI planted a what they called a spy into the Trump campaign. And that actually resulted in an informant of the FBI being outed, being publicly named. And so after that happened, I was talking to this one agent who's telling me the story. He received a call from a source of his own and said, I want you to promise me that my name will never get out there. And the agent told me it was a promise he couldn't keep because we're now in this new world where politicians are going to politicize an investigation. He couldn't promise them. So the reason that's important is because it's hard to prove a negative. We don't know how it's, this is going to affect what people don't do. But you can imagine that if there are sources out there, people who may have been you know, willing to sign up to help the FBI, and you see people then now being named, that could hurt their efforts if you don't have sources coming forward to help. So there are real consequences. Right.
0: So you, you talk about the impact of— having this sustained attack by the president of the United States on the FBI and for agents. Now, look, we've been in the business a long time. We're used to getting attacked. Mm -hmm. And the usual response that we're told to give is just do your job. Don't get distracted. Don't rise to the bait. Mm -hmm. Take the bait and engage in a pissing match with your critics. That's not what your boss, your former boss has done. Right. James Comey has gone quite public about calling for the president's removal through an election, calling him a liar, suggesting he may well have been subject to compromise uh, by the Russians. He doesn't know, but maybe it has, which struck a lot of people as a strange thing to say as a former FBI director, if you don't know Mm -hmm. and don't have the evidence. Has Comey fallen into the trap of taking Donald Trump's bait in trying to duel with him in public?
3: So I guess I would take a exception with the premise of, in a little bit in this way, because if that's a trap, then what's the alternative? And is the alternative Silence. And I think we're in this new era where the public is being manipulated, and that's that's the reason I, I stepped outside the FBI to help the American people try to understand what's true and what's politics, what's political noise. And by the way, I'll, I'll say that you know this book is critical of the FBI as well. So my job today isn't to say everything the FBI do- does you know is good. Uh, it's to point out their faults. It's to point out their successes. You know when they happen, just as you know, course of any day reporting. But then to help the American people realize when they're being manipulated. And so if you are someone Someone that's in a high position such as Comey was, and I would argue the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General, the alternative to speaking out and trying to correct the record and telling the American people that they're being manipulated, the alternative to that, the end of the spectrum, is silence. And in this day and age, if you're silent, then the narrative continues to take hold in the psyche of the American people that these people are corrupt. And the reason I know that that is taking hold, I write about in the book this polling data that shows that confidence in the FBI has declined dramatically, especially among Republicans. The quote-unquote party of law enforcement, of, you know, I, I cite some polling data in 2014. It was in the high 70s as far as a percentage of Republicans that had high confidence in the FBI. The latest data you know, that I mentioned is somewhere around 50% that have confidence. So you see that that narrative is taking hold. And so I don't know if you're someone like Comey or I would throw in Clapper and some of these others that you spent- Brennan in, Bre- certainly Brennan, fits a, in that category. Brennan's a little- I, I, He's a little different. He's a little more, uh, I think, aggressive than than I would be, I mean, as far as yeah. the blasting goes. But I guess they're all similar in this manner. Is If you spent your career- dedicated to serving these agencies and to upholding their mission, and that was your life's work. How can you be silent when you see politicians now attacking those agencies for purely political gain? If you cared enough to spend that much time in the agency, you're going to care enough to try to help the American people understand what it's really about. So
1: do you agree with Comey that uh, Trump should be removed? from office but only through an election
3: not my role to play so in this day and age so i'm i wear two hats you know now at cnn analysis but also reporting so you know as someone who i mean you you have been journalist for a long time but someone who is you know now in that field where my job is to simply tell what happened and explain the actions it's not my job to say what the end result is in your
1: book never did i imagine a day when the greatest threat to our institutions would come from within our own government right but here we are. You are clearly referring to Donald Trump.
3: No question. And, and what I take exception to are the actions, again, to say, look, the president and his folks have engaged in this campaign of attack. The answer to that is for them to stop that. It's not for me to say he should be removed or, you know, that's up to the American people. They can decide. But what I'm pointing out in this book is if this campaign of attack continues, it will have real consequences. And I also, you know, there's no good news, I think, long term, is in my view, because 2020 if people inside the FBI and the Justice Department think that the last three years were tough for them, 2020 is going to be something like they've never seen because the president, his presidency is going to be on the line whether he gets reelected or not. Some have argued because of these investigations in New York and statute of limitations and the like, it's possible—I mean, not to be an alarmist or to be a conspiracy theorist, but it's possible his freedom might be on the line if he is prosecuted after he leaves office— So he's going to do whatever it takes, in my mind, to get reelected. And I think a key campaign strategy is going to use the Justice Department, the FBI, and Mueller as the foils to say, these people robbed me of three years of my presidency. I'm the victim, and that's going to require this campaign of attack to continue. So
1: so you were an eyewitness to these extraordinary and to many people highly troubling events. Mm. We want to hear some of those stories. So tell us the moment— when you first begin to realize that something dangerous was afoot with this president?
3: I think the first came after the now infamous loyalty dinner that James Comey has described, where he explains he went to the White House for dinner thinking that he would be there with a group of people in government and ended up being a one-on-one meeting with the president, which he thought was inappropriate because of the historical independence of the Justice Department and especially the director of the FBI. Did you
1: talk to him before when he made the decision to go to that dinner, even though he was uncomfortable with it?
3: Yes, but he wasn't uncomfortable until he got there, because he didn't know it was a one-on-one until he gets there and sees that there's a table set for two. Uh, initially, it was, okay, I'm going to the, to the White House. He had to cancel a dinner date with his wife and, you know— But once he gets here, he realizes that this is not what he was expecting. And in that dinner, as he describes, the president said, I need your loyalty. I need loyalty from you. And that was something that obviously troubled him. Now, it's also important to provide the other side of that. The president denies that ever happened. So, you know, folks can judge for themselves who they believe, you know, based on the the record, I, I guess. But so getting a readout from that dinner, realizing like, wow, we're on new ground here where, you know, as you all know, there, there have been instances, and I write at length in the book, about the real intelligence abuses of the government back in the 70s under J. Edgar Hoover, who engaged in gross violations of civil liberties in the name of national security, they say. Um, that caused loss of faith on a massive level from, uh, in, among the American people as it related to these intelligence community uh, agencies, and then also resulted in this wholesale change where you had oversight, you had FISA and the like. And so moving beyond that, we now risk being back to that if, you know, now you have a president or any anyone in politics trying to use these levers of power as they relate to these intelligence agencies for their own purposes, and that includes sitting across from the top investigator at the FBI and saying, I need you to be loyal to me.
0: You worked for Robert Mueller as well. Uh, you talk about, uh, you have some scenes of yeah. uh, being in the room with uh, Mueller, a, quite a stern taskmaster. Sure. Um, were you surprised at the conclusions of his investigation...
3: No, and I actually wrote about this, um, and and I mean this is an ego. I don't want to. That be he brought
0: people. no charges against anybody right. in the Trump campaign yeah. for conspiring with the Russians, and then failed to reach a conclusion or a judgment as to whether or not there was obstruction of justice by the president.
3: Right, and I, I wasn't surprised it really, as it relate to the president. Um, and and what I just want to mention, I don't want to be one of those people. I said back then, blah blah yeah. blah, and that turn of fruition, Right, yeah. okay, I don't want to be that guy. But I wrote about this, you know, right after Mueller got elected or uh, selected. selected. Basically, my premise was Republicans and Democrats both need to manage their expectations because he's going to go no farther than the evidence takes him. His past, you know, his history is, has shown that that's the kind of person that he is. So, as it relates to the president, I wasn't surprised that he would adhere to the DOJ policy, you know, against uh, moving on a sitting president. I was surprised on the others, you know, the other actions we saw in Volume One as related to these interactions between Trump people and and uh, and the Russians. You thought there was
0: grounds for bringing criminal charges?
3: I think well. Against who? Well, like Roger Stone, for example, which we still don't well, know. He was charged. That, well, we, but we, we still don't know how that ends, w- right. which I think will be interesting. But others in that orbit, I was surprised that it was as cut and dry that, you know, okay, we're not moving at all. And, and I think there's there's still, I don't know, I, I don't think the story on the, the book on Russia is closed, because I think that there there are a lot of things that we just don't know. You know, obviously questions about the president's finances and all that, which, and again, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist and say that there is and I'm certainly not going to be one of those people that former intelligence community people who's going to you know and I've seen this in others say well you know there's some troubling things I can't get into but I'm not I'm not going there but I I suspect you know that there's probably more to the story just based on how lengthy and in-depth the story is so we'll see what happens obviously with Roger Stone but with the president I wasn't surprised with that I was surprised as many were on the manner in which the attorney general handled that, because whenever William Barr was selected, I was one of those saying we need to give him the benefit of the doubt. This institutionalist, I did not see him then intercepting this pass, you know, that folks think was was meant for Congress.
0: So we're any day now told we will see the Justice Department Inspector General report Mm -hmm. on the FBI's FISA warrant on Carter Page and whether the Bureau used a dossier paid for by the Clinton campaign Mm -hmm. that was uncorroborated as a basis to get that warrant on an advisor to the Trump campaign. Do you accept that there are legitimate questions about how the Bureau went about getting that FISA and its use of the Christopher Steele dossier.
3: The way I look at that is I think that the FBI should always be questioned, especially in these high-profile investigations, when you're talking about people that are surrounding the person who's on the cusp of becoming the most powerful person in the world. The great powers of this agency require this great oversight. So something like that. Even if the allegations didn't come to light, I think it would be worth looking back, at least you know, within the Justice Department and maybe the Intelligence Committees to figure out, okay, how did they act? We just want to make sure everything's good to go. This is oversight. So I think that's always important. The one thing that I will be interested to see what the IG does is, and I know this from having worked investigations and worked FISA's in the past, is before you present information to a judge, and this is not just on the national security side, this is also on the criminal side— the FBI agent doesn't have to prove that it's true before they're able to use it. Otherwise, I mean, it's very difficult to prove anything's true, right? But you have to have a good faith belief that the source of the information is correct before you're going to use that to gather you know, legal process against anyone to include electronic surveillance and that that's not defined you're not going to read in the manual what that means that now this is satisfied our requirement but it's based on the investigative experience and expertise of that agent to look at that source of information and say this is coming from a credible source we believe it to be true if there are caveats such as the fact that this was you know paid for by opposition parties and people then that you have Would to you point that out Did you know about
0: any of this at the time?
3: I don't want to go into that part just you know <laughs> in, in in my post you know or pre pre CNN life Obviously, as an FBI agent, you know, there are certain sensitivities and things that I can't talk about. But, and, and I'm not holding back any bombshells. I'm just, you know, I just try to steer clear of that. But my only point is that if you look at that snapshot in time before a FISA application is about to be presented, and, again, I've done a number of FISAs in my FBI life, you have to have a good faith belief that it's true. And that will be interesting to see what the IG finds. That Did those agents think, yeah, this was an experienced former intelligence officer from the U.K.? Who presented this information? And there was this, you know, page-long footnote that yes, this thing was paid for, presented by an opposition. By, by party.
0: somebody who had reason to want to cause harm to the Trump campaign. Correct. Did not say it was Hillary Clinton's right. campaign Correct. through a law firm and an opposition right. research firm. And,
3: and, and yeah. that's standard for protecting the information of U.S. persons, right? In, in these kind of settings as well. So we'll we'll see what they come down on if 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 they. Here's what I have a hard time believing, knowing the people that work these investigations, knowing how the FBI works. There's no way in my mind that these agents gathered together, and this is this deep state myth, right, and said, we're going to go after the Trump people, and we're going to you know, do something inappropriate to gather this information. Because, I don't want to be cute here, but if the goal was to set up Carter Page or someone in Trump world, The FBI could have just manufactured evidence, right? I mean, you don't have to go through that. Well,
0: that would be a clear crime by somebody at the FBI if they did that.
3: As would purposefully presenting a judge information that you don't believe is true. That would also be, I think, equally bad. And so that's why I don't think that none of that occurred as far as them saying, "Okay, we're going to do this for nefarious reasons. I think that you know they are trying to stop or at least get a picture of this national security threat to figure out what was there, and they presented the information that was in front of them.
1: By the way, what did you think of the last IG report uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago that concluded that Comey um, had violated his non-disclosure agreement and FBI guidelines by essentially leaking? memos to, not to journalists directly, but indirectly.
3: Well, so I write in the book and, you know, again, Comey is one of those that I don't hold back criticism for. And that's one area that I criticize him as the way that those memos were handled. I think that um, I understand that he's saying these are my conversations between me and someone else who just happens to be the president. Okay, that's fine. But I think that what he should have done In that instance, if the goal, as he says, was to ensure that a special counsel would be appointed to look into what had transpired, go hold a press conference, put your name on it. You don't release your memos, in my view, because there's still a question of whether that's government property or not. But you say, I documented interactions with the president that are troubling. I've handed them over to Congress. Now over to you, uh, you know, folks, to investigate. Or you don't d- go to the press; you go to the to the the courts, or you go to your oversight committees uh, in the Congress. You don't use this cutout to then leak something. As I did, you tell him it. that I have told him that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that he was going to leak it before he did it, but <laughs> after the fact, I've certainly told him that. How um, did you take it? You know, it's interesting. Our whole relationship and the reason why he hired me was because I gave him critical advice or you know critical mm-hmm. feedback. And this was consistent with that relationship that he he said, well, you know, it was kind of between a rock and a hard place. I said, yeah, but I still think, you know, you were wrong. And what's interesting, though, and this is the interesting dynamic just to bring you inside the FBI at that time, only a handful of people knew about this loyalty dinner and, you know, the, the suggestion from the president to let – the Flynn investigation go. And so I don't necessarily think I was in the majority opinion that Comey was in the wrong because there were people inside the FBI that were happy that this information finally got to light and that the American people finally learned that their president had tried to obstruct an investigation. And so getting that information out, you know, may not be a bad thing. I just I quibble with the manner in which that went down.
0: So you talk about how the bureaus has taken quite a hit because of President Trump. But as you also point out, there were quite a few missteps within the bureau itself. Mm. And let's start with Peter Strzok. Mm. The lead agent in the investigation into the president is writing private text messages talking about his contempt for the president. Now, I think most people would agree they would not want to have an FBI agent investigating them who expresses contempt for them. That inevitably Taints what the agent is going to do, whether it's real or it's just a perception, it's not something that you would want. And you talk about the firing of Peter Strzok done by the deputy director, David Bodich, mm -hmm. who you say is a man of utmost integrity. It's been presented that he was fired as part of some political retaliation. Strzok has alleged that in a lawsuit, but you're saying no, this was justified, and the idea that Bowditch was acting due to politics. You write is
3: ludicrous. I believe that, and just the first part, knowing Dave Batters as a person. I mean, I worked with him in, uh, for him in a number of different roles in the field, and then obviously he was a very senior at headquarters. He's just not not that kind of person. That's you know, again, I, I write there are a few things I can say with great certainty, but that is one of them. That this person that I know would do anything f- for political reasons when this was the. You know everything about him is the opposite of that, so so that gives me you know comfort. But again, that's you know I'm not going to convince a listener of that. that right. That's just my view. But what I believe happened here, and this seemed to be a theme, you know, in the bureau. And one thing I do with the book is I I made a point to interview dozens of people, um, inside outside government, because I didn't want this to be just the view of one person who lived this experience. I want to make sure that the reader at least gets some kind of snapshot. And the one theme that I saw with folks that were in the FBI is that you had a stellar agent who exercised incredibly poor judgment, someone who had a history of serving the nation, both in the military and then with the FBI, countering threats from hostile foreign governments, who was a great agent who used incredibly bad judgment, which had to be, you know, he had to be held to account. And the question on the text, and I, you know, between the two is obviously there, in my view, there are a number of issues there. There's using your government device to you know, obviously send this, this type of material back and forth. I would argue that in the FBI and in the intelligence community, people have opinions on things. I mean, the, you think about who these agencies recruit. They recruit people who are curious about the world, and people don't gather information about the world without formulating an opinion about it. So people have ideas about politicians. The question is, is that going to impact their work? I don't think it inve- impacted their investigation because if they were going to go after Donald Trump, they would have leaked he- his campaign was under investigation before the election. They would have had to show their work eventually if they were trying to charge him with something. Um, but I think it was poor judgment in, in the way that they did. But there's another thing which I don't maybe doesn't get talked about enough, and I don't want to just you know pile on to Peter Struck, but the issue also of him and his position as a very senior person in the counterintelligence division, who would have been the subject of collection efforts by foreign governments just by the nature of his position. Mm-hmm. If you're carrying on an extramarital affair, I, don't, I mean, I don't care about what people do in their personal life, but if that's not a point of leverage that a you know, possible foreign government could mm-hmm. you know, try to utilize, I'm not saying that he would have gone along with that, but I'm just saying it just opens you up to questions of bad judgment. So I think what happened here is someone like Dave Bowditch, who was a deputy director, there's no precedent for this, right? But there is—people know inside the FBI— that you tell the truth. There's this adage, you don't embarrass the bureau. It, come, it comes from the J. Edgar Hoover days. And your credibility is your currency. And so if, you're no, if you are no longer have credibility because of these you know, lapses in judgment, then you're no longer effective.
0: Just very quickly, another person you write about in the book, same situation, Andrew McCabe, yeah. now your fellow CNN colleague. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write that McCabe was a good man, a fine leader, but absent some new revelation contradicting the findings that he lied mm-hmm. by the highly respected inspector general, it is difficult for me to stare at the facts and call his dismissal excessive or unfair.
3: So McCabe deserved to be fired as well. I think there had to be some type of punishment to the actions. And again, it's the same boat. A really good person, I worked for him, you know, a great agent. But when you have an independent inspector general, who I also hold in high regard, the idea that Horowitz, the inspector general, would would do something to go along with the White House just doesn't square with, you know, the way I see that office. So if the IG says he lied... And that was the finding, and now you know we'll find out whether there's a prosecution. That's what I'm trying to get at. There, it's it's hard for me to look at that independent IG and the work that they did. You know, unless there's some revelation that he comes up with, which I haven't seen yet, to say that they were politicized or what they're saying is wrong. It's very hard to stare at that and say that 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 that's incorrect. And again, he was a top FBI agent in the organization as the deputy director, the highest-ranking FBI agent. I think what happened is, you know, it would be very difficult for FBI leadership to tell the rank and file that you have to tell the truth. There will be consequences if you don't tell the truth when the top FBI agent lies and doesn't face consequences. I think that's the dilemma they face.
0: And how does he serve as a CNN commentator?
3: It's, it's not for me to say. I mean, that's CNN can talk about that. But obviously, he his perspective, he has much perspective on all the current issues to date, which are of great interest and probably great interest to the viewers as well to know what was going on inside the room. And then also... I think you know people are innocent until proven guilty. And he, we're in that period right now, so I think it's too early to cast judgment on them in, in that respect.
1: Let's go back to a day that must have been one of the most surreal in your professional career, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, out in Los Angeles mm-hmm. when the director is visiting a field office and learns by seeing on CNN, CNN <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, the <laughs> aforementioned CNN, right. that he's been fired. Yeah. What was that like? And then you flew back... On a private plane, right yeah. uh, back uh, to the East Coast. So tell us that story.
3: Yeah, you know it's interesting that day because it, you know, it started like any other day in the directorship of Jim Comey. He was always on the go. He he saw the FBI as this deployed force that's you know 56 uh, major cities around the country, and so he was constantly on the go visiting the troops. This particular day, we were set to fly from Washington down to Florida, where he was going to meet with law enforcement officers, and then we were going to fly to Los Angeles where he would take part in a diversity recruitment event to try to bring in, you know, highly talented people of color to join the FBI. And before that, since we got to LA early, he wanted to go by the field office and, you know, again see the troops. And it was surreal because this was my old field office, and so I was bringing, uh, that's what I felt, like I'm bringing the director like look who I brought, you know, and all my <laughs> family and friends, like show and tell. And so it, it was, you know, it started out great. We had, you know, meeting with leadership and Again, he just wanted to learn, okay, what are the top cases going on? What are you, what are you folks doing? And so uh, he makes laps around the building. He gets about three floors up, and we stop into the building's operations center where there are a group of employees that are gathered for, a, I think, a training program. And so he starts addressing them. He wants to give them some comments on you know, the state of the FBI. And what was interesting is as his special assistant, I would kind of perfected this art of being on my phone typing away, preparing for whatever was gonna come next while kind of listening to him out of one ear. And so he stops talking, and the silence snaps me out of that, you know, my reading. And I look at him, and he's looking at me, and he's nodding to the back of the room where there were two large television screens. The first one was tuned to Fox News, and it said, Comey resigns. And so he was trying to process this, not knowing <laughs> what was going on. Not having resigned. Not having resigned. I was saying, Presumably he would know if he had <laughs> resigned. And so he actually thought that it was some uh, creative tech agent pulling a joke on him in the office, you know, creating the Chiron, and then just a little bit later, I think seconds later, CNN came on. Our colleague Jeff Zeleny uh, at the White House uh, reporting that no, he had indeed been fired. And what was interesting is that you know it's shock. I mean, it's, this isn't this isn't the shock that comes from danger or that kind of thing. It's just like shock of wow. This I'm trying to process what's going on here. Um, and so he continues talking. So I step outside the room and call back to Washington to try to figure out what's going on. And I got a hold of one of the senior leaders who hadn't heard the news yet. He was on his way home. And so he turns around. And so we uh, I take home to the side office where just so we can kind of sit and make calls and process what's going on. And then, you know, that's how we learn how this transpired, where you essentially have the president's personal bodyguard dropping off a letter at the escort desk, which, might, you know, you've been through many times, <laughs> yes, right, to get your, yeah. your badge <laughs> and saying, hey, I got this for the boss, for the director. You're not even realizing he's not even in the same time zone, which is, uh, that's of interest in the manner that went down because, you know, this isn't this tough guy, your fired reputation. It's I'm going to send my guy to go give you a letter. So we're trying to process what's going on. We eventually get word that okay, they scanned the letter. They send it back. Yes, indeed, the director has been fired. And then from there, it was just this state of chaos because it was hard to process in the moment why he had been fired, because you know we knew about the loyalty pledge, we knew about the Flynn, you know, asking that investigation to be dropped. And then just before that, the president was was getting increasingly angry with Comey because Comey refused to publicly announce that Trump was not under investigation. And so this continued, obviously, to degrade on the president. So, this,
1: so at this point, you're not thinking this must have to do with the Clinton email investigation. Well,
3: we saw the letter from Rod Rosenstein. i sure you saw the letter. Right? The letter, yeah, so, yeah. Until then, right. So they, they our uh, office in D.C. scanned the letter. They sent it back to us, and we're sitting there reading it. And that's when the blood started to boil because you're thinking, are you kidding me? The Hillary Clinton email investigation. You know, if that were the case, that they were upset with him for that, they would have fired him. You know, on day one of the presidency, so we knew that that well, was a shame. I think Rod
1: Rosenstein had recommended that, right?
3: right.
0: Well, not, well, I don't think he recommended, he recommended it from it, day but, one. It right. wasn't until Trump made it clear that he wanted to get rid of Comey right, okay. that Rod Rosenstein came up with that yeah. explanation. Right. Josh, there's a lot in this book we could be talking about for one, a long time.
1: Oh, I got one last okay. question. One last question, uh, which is a. Uh, Development this week, mm. Yahoo News reported a very significant counterintelligence breach. The Russians hacked into encrypted FBI communications or radios, which counterintelligence agents used to trail Russian agents on U.S. soil, which apparently had uh, you know significant damage in terms of being able to trail them, letting the Russians know that we were onto them. What do you know about that, and what do you think the impact of that's been?
3: Well, the, f- the first part I'll steer clear of that, but the second part, that the impact is, I mean, highly troubling. Just the idea that these teams, which are charged with tracking spies, would then become compromised themselves with their communication. I mean, that, that's devastating, you know, for the FBI. As has been reported, you know, the FBI has these teams that all they do is track foreign spies. And these are the kind of people that, you know, you're not going to find them stepping foot inside an FBI field office, because obviously their role is covert. But if you're able to, as you know, the story had indicated, if you're able to identify the communication devices and the communication patterns and the uh, characteristics of these devices, you can very quickly identify the person that's using them. And when the the same number of communication devices show up in the same place, you know you have an FBI surveillance team on your tail.
1: Does it raise questions about the quality of our tradecraft, our ability to, I mean, if the Russians can hack what should be highly encrypted secret communication systems, do we have a real problem here?
3: We do. And I and I, th- I think the the best way to think about this is I have no doubt that, you know, this is causing great concern, you know, inside the Bureau, not only it happening, but also now being publicized. But the thing is, like, this could not have come of as a surprise to the FBI because you think about what we do overseas with other agencies in the U S government to try to do the same type of thing to collect information. And so
1: that's the name of the game. Well, shame
3: on us. If we then allow our own system, it's not as though this came as a big surprise or at least it shouldn't have, because if we're trying to do that to them, we should at least be trying to ensure that we're not victim of the same methods.
0: Um, Josh, you wanted to say something about where at least some of the proceeds from your book, are going.
3: Yeah, thanks so much. I I wanted to work this in because uh, obviously the book, the topic is trying to help the public understand this campaign of attack and why that impacts public safety. But secondly, I wanted to use this book unrelated to the topic of the actual book, but as a vehicle to help spotlight this fund. Since 9-11, and especially, you know, in, in recent years, we've seen that there are still FBI agents that are dying from illnesses manifesting now years later, uh, cancers that are coming back. And so, with the death of FBI agents, that also requires, or you know, obviously their families because of
0: exposure uh, in the ground during zero. In a ground, zero. ground zero. Yeah, yeah.
3: you know, cr- crawling through the rubble, trying to gather uh, evidence and the like, We're seeing these diseases now manifest, which is now with the recent deaths has you know put a number of families in very tough financial situations. So the FBI agents association has a fund that cares for the family of uh, fallen FBI agents, and in particular, will send to college the children of fallen FBI agents. And So one thing I wanted to do with this book is to help spotlight that. So as you mentioned, half the proceeds of the book will go to that fund, uh, half of my proceeds, but then also I want people to be generally aware of this fund as well, Um, especially when we come upon the charity season, the end of the year. Even if they don't buy the book, even if they disagree with everything I said, <laughs> well, I still want them to know. Well, other than buying
1: the book, how can they uh, contribute to the fund? If so, they want to? so
3: you can go on FBI Agents Association website, Google that. There's a link there that'll take you to the Memorial College Fund uh, and show how, you know ways that you can give. It's a real problem, and I talked to an agent um, in the course of writing this book who said that every year since he was there at Ground Zero, going through you know that that uh, terrible site, he has to get tested every single year. And when he goes to the doctor, he's waiting to determine, is my death sentence coming? And again, we've seen in the the past few years a number of agents now dying. And so this is a real problem, even this so many years later. And so I just want the the people to know about that. I appreciate you letting me talk about that. It's a great way, I think, to help those who are out there on the front lines trying to protect the country. The book is Crossfire
0: Hurricane. Josh Campbell, thanks for
3: joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks. Thanks to New
1: York congressional candidate Lindsey Boylan and former FBI special agent and author Josh Campbell for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.